This is the Sarah Swain Show, where we talk all things bold and courageous business and have big and free conversations with brave humans. Nothing is off the table here, so get ready to be moved, challenged, empowered, and propelled into action. Welcome back to the Sarah Swain Show, everyone. I have the great pleasure of having the honorable uh, A. Brian Peckford here with me today, who is the former uh, premier of Newfoundland and Labrador and also the only living signatory of our Charter of Rights and Freedoms here in Canada. Brian, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. We're going to get into all sorts of things today, and I know that the listeners are eager to hear about the application that you currently have before the courts that is uh, actively pushing back on the federal travel mandate specifically. But before we get into that, I would love to understand your perspective of the last two years. So obviously, you have been very, very active in pushing back on what I think we can completely agree on, colossal government overreach and uh, huge disrespect for the constitutions that we have in place here in Canada. What was it for you specifically that made you start thinking something isn't quite right and this is getting to be past the point of concerning, so much so to the point that you felt that you had to start intervening? Well, uh, a, a good a, a good question to I think to ask to start this discussion, and um, I think I could say that well, number one, um, anybody who knows me knows that I'm a, a little bit of a contrarian anyway by nature. My dad, when I was a boy, <coughs> had a nickname on me. He called me Digger, <laughs> and so I guess that that tells it all. <laughs> and so I grew up in that kind of mode. In recent times, in my retirement, I started my own blog because I wanted to get my point of view out there to a, a larger audience, just not just to a few friends. And so uh, I began that. And so that led me to accelerate what I always did, which was read a lot. And therefore, I had to research a lot more, not just read for leisure and do it in my own time. And so, of course, when the pandemic so-called came along, and then you began to see how governments were irrationally responding to this, it immediately, you know, the antenna immediately went up. And so then I started to follow more closely because I was writing every day and publishing other people's views every day, uh, just what other people were saying. And so that led me into avenues of, uh, of skepticism and cynicism. Uh, by scholars and uh, scientists. But I think what really copper fastened it for me, and I guess that's it's like for most people, when it's in the realm of ideas is one thing. When it gets to the ground and something actually happens, uh, then that really, you know, um, <laughs> fastens the mind. And in this case, Dr. Charles Hoff, uh, the doctor in Lytton, British Columbia, who suddenly found himself in a situation where the College of Physicians of Surgeons of British Columbia started to accuse him of something called vaccine skeptic. Mm -hmm. And they said it in such a way as one would almost think it was in the criminal code. 
Mm-hmm. For this man to harbor a view that he was worried about the vaccines. And he had reason because tangibly his own clientele had been vaccinated. First Nations first. They were the first to be vaccinated. And he had people coming into his office that were injured mm-hmm. by the vaccine that looked like to him. It was a sort of direct relations. They were great, had the vaccine, suddenly sick. And the idea of being sick wasn't so much the problem, it was that the unusual nature of the sickness that he hadn't seen before, therefore leading him to be more uh, leaning towards it being caused by the vaccine. And so he immediately referred these people to specialists who were supposed to know more than him and give a diagnosis or help him get a diagnosis. Well, they refused to see his patients. And then it spiraled out of control from there. I called Dr. Hoff and he confirmed uh, what I had heard. Some of it I had heard on lo- from local papers, which only carried it for 24 months and then eliminated for under pressure uh, to not continue to carry this. And so that right away, you know, your red flags go up. And so I investigated this and I wrote about it at the time. And that led me uh, into what was going on in Ontario, where people were writing there. So that's what led me into it. And then, of course, as I began to see governments make taking action, which obviously, from my point of view, being one of the people around for the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, were coming really close to violating many provisions of the Charter and then to blatantly violate the Charter, well, then I had to speak up. And I knew I was the only one left. I knew the rest of the First Ministers had passed away, all except one, which was the William Davis of Ontario, who passed away last year in his 90s, and he had, had not been making any comment for the last couple of years on public policy. So obviously he was uh, he was not well, but then he passed away, and then I became the lone first minister. Uh, and of course, uh, Mr. Davis at the time of the charter was on Mr. Trudeau's side. So uh, once again, um, he was not sort of in my camp to start with. And even though he did later, when we finally negotiated the, the uh, patriation agreement, which became the Constitution Act in which the Charter of Rights was located, uh, he, he got on board. He wasn't, he wasn't an early participant in, in the things that we, the other results were. So these are the kinds of things that happened that led me. And of course, as they had followed day, there was more and more lockdowns, more and more draconian measures. Uh, yes, you know, freedom of assembly, freedom of association, which is uh, section two of the charter. Uh, the pastors in Alberta, for example, how they were treated. All of this just suddenly smacked of, uh, of overreach, as you said. And really, and I keep using the word violation because it's more of, a, uh, of an overreach. It's a complete and direct violation of what the charter stands for. And then when the government start trying to use Section 1 to justify what they were doing of the Charter, which has become sort of a punching bag for everybody, I was there when that was written and I helped write it. I remember um, fighting about the business of uh, demonstrably justified. And the other thing that got really mad was when lawyers, even lawyers, started to start talking publicly about the reasonable limits clause. And I kept just saying, what are you talking about the reasonable limits clause? The main operative phraseology in section one is demonstrably demonstrate. In other words, they were deliberately 
downplaying demonstrably justify and upplaying, if you will, for one of a better phrase, reasonable limits clause. But if you read section one, it's clear. And so all of these things became clear to me that there was a, a, a real um, formulation of a view <clears throat> which was inconsistent with logical thinking, scientific thinking, uh, where people were being hurt like Dr. Hoff, where the charter was being violated, and people were manipulating the words of the charter. And so I just had to, I just couldn't, and, and that's me anyway. I'm a, <clears throat> if I have a, a view, everybody knows about it pretty quickly. And uh, so this is no different. And so here I am, a year and a half, two years later, still in the fray, to the point where yesterday um, I was informed that uh, uh, the speech that I was to give, first one, at the local high school, which had been agreed to by the principal, suddenly got canceled. And the poor teacher who had contacted my wife and I to ask if we were interested and we were overjoyed because no school had contacted us anywhere in Canada, except for a couple of private education groups that are homeschooling. And now one private school institution in Toronto just in the last week, this was the first time that any high school or, or higher education institution in the whole country had contacted me. Um, we were overjoyed to make this breakthrough only to find out yesterday that it got canceled. The principal called the teacher in who was organizing and said, uh, sorry, even though I agreed to this two days ago, everybody's been making arrangements. Uh, this has to be canceled. And the reason why it was canceled, because somebody in the audience might ask the wrong question, or Mr. Peckford is in the news a lot these days, and Mr. Peckford might give a wrong statement. And it was for those reasons that Mr. Peckford, yours truly, Brian, was duly canceled from speaking at an already approved event in a publicly financed, taxpayer financed public school in my little city. Wow. So all of the all of your observations over the last two years or so really came to head by that one single event. Because what what you're saying here, and I share pretty pretty close to your exact observations of what is actually going on here? I remember Dr. Hoff specifically um, when all of that was starting to happen and he was starting to speak out and the issues he was having with uh, the College of Physicians. And that was a, a pretty pivotal moment for me as well to ask why, why are we um, filtering doctors' real lived observations and, and care for their patients? What What could possibly be the reason for that and why are we not giving them a voice to um, allow people to have a more informed decision no. prior to them engaging in the experimental no. vaccine. Um, and for clarity purposes, you mentioned uh, section one of the charter and I'll just read it here. The Canadian charter of rights and freedoms guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be uh, demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So you're you're saying that this is the section of the charter that they, uh, the, the powers that be that are violating the charter, are using as justification to violate the other sections of the charter. And your yeah. argument is that 
that is only true if there can be a full demonstration and justification in order for the charter to be uh, null and void. Well, my first argument is before that. My first argument is when we were writing that section, the intent was that it could only be used in very dire circumstances. That was the intent. And in law, intent matters. Yes. The judges look behind the law all the time to look at intent and explore the circumstances at the time to see what the intent was. So this is not unusual, what I'm saying. And so the intent was, I remember, well, uh, that it was to be used because that's why we were putting it in the Constitution. Remember, we had a Bill of Rights in 1960, uh, Prime Minister John Diefenbaker, but it was only a federal act and only applied to federal uh, jurisdiction, never applied to provincial jurisdiction. Therefore, it wasn't national. It was federal, not national. There's a difference between federal and national because we are a federal state. Okay, so this is why from 1960 to 1981, there was this urge or this uh, agitation to do something more with the Bill of Rights, and that is to put it somewhere beyond the easy reach of being changed quickly by a majority government, as we know how quickly that can a law can get changed mm-hmm. recently. So that was the whole idea, was to put it in, a consti- in the Constitution so it would be more permanent. That's what a constitution is all about. People, lawyers, judges are forgetting that today. And I get yes. so mad when I read some of these decisions because they don't even understand what a constitution is anymore, right? And so we thought it was self-evident to, to breach this, this section one would necessitate a peril to the state, insurrection, war, right? Something like that, some peril to the state. Not a pandemic with a 99.7 survival rate. Over 99% recovery and less than 1% fatality rate. Give me a break. That doesn't apply at all. So my first argument is that the intent of Section 1 doesn't even allow for it to apply to this situation. Mm -hmm. Number two, being a fair person, I say, okay, I'll take you on in your argument that it does apply. Well, there are four tests. And if you read carefully Section 1, if you have... Remember your high school grammar, um, and I was an English teacher. And if you remember your, your high school grammar, it's quite clear when you read section one that the operative phrase there, verbs are usually the operative phrase in a sentence, aren't they? Mm-hmm. Uh, usually, as I understand it. And so here you have it, guarantees rights and freedoms set out in it, subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified. So the verb, the the operative verb in that sentence is demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. So I I take section one and I break it up into four tests, right? One, if you're going to override all these rights and freedoms that were deliberately put in the constitution, right? And that section one does apply. The number one, you must demonstrably justify what you're doing, government, before you can override. You must do it within reasonable limits. You must do it by law, three, and four, you must do it in the context of a free and democratic society. Now, I don't think there are many people on this planet who heard what I just said and understand English that would argue with how I just described what section one means. I I think there would be a 99% to 1% in my favor of what Mm -hmm. I just said in Mm -hmm. in, uh, in interpreting that section one. 
So what? So I go on to say, okay, two of these are definitely not being met by all the governments of Canada in their mandates and their and their and their uh, lockdowns. At, at least two of the four. So therefore, section one doesn't apply, and the two are demonstrably justified. Now, anybody again who knows anything about public policy and government knows that when you say the words, not just justify, I remember we fought over this, by the way, and made sure that demonstrably was in there. That was That's not by, by just, just by accident. That demonstrably got in there because we wanted to strengthen section one. Demonstrably justified. You gotta go out of your way to demonstrate what you're doing is justifiable. Right. Okay? Now, in the, in, in the context of public policy, that usually means something like a cost-benefit analysis. I remember when I was premier back in the 80s, when new legislation was coming up or something that we had promised in the election campaign, now we're going to put it into legislation. The first thing when it came up for the first, re, the first go-round within government would be, is this really necessary? What are we doing here? Does it really make things better? or not. And so somebody would speak up and say, oh, yeah, gosh, some um, um, uh, analyst within the government would say, well, we need a cost-benefit analysis. So they would go away and do their own uh, in-house cost-benefit analysis, take a look at it, bring it up to cabinet, and uh, and we would take a look at it and say, you know, oh, it's pretty problematic here, whether this is really, (laughs) the, the benefits really outweigh the costs. Perhaps we should get an outside uh, consultant to take another look at it. We've done it in-house. And then you'd get more people involved to do it. And then you would decide based upon the results of the cost benefit. That was not done in Canada in any of the 14 governments, the three territories, the 10 provinces, and the federal government. And nobody in their right mind can look me straight in the eye and say that they were. They just went ahead and did whatever it is they wanted to do. Now, what they even did, which was so arrogant of them in some jurisdictions, where they had given power to the public health officers to hide behind a bureaucrat rather than the minister taking the, it on mm-hmm. himself with the advice of the public health officer, but allowing them to actually go out front and center as if they were elected, mm-hmm. as if they were elected. They actually mentioned in some of these um, health orders, we are aware of the Charter of Rights, full stop as if they were justified then in doing what they did by just mentioning the words Charter of Rights and Freedoms. And then that gave the public more confidence that it was being considered. Exactly. And all they said were the words. They never justified it. They never, right, implemented Section 1 and the tests in Section 1. The other part, the fourth test, is also very important here. We can say that reasonable limits may, may be debatable. By law, because they use the legislation, even though they did it wrong, open and close the house real fast. So we could still debate those two reasonable limits uh, and by law. We could. And, 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 and it's ambiguous. But clear cut is the, is the number one. They demonstrably justify and free and democratic society. Because what does a free and democratic society mean in Canada? It means parliamentary democracy. Without parliamentary democracy, there's no free and democratic society. Once again. I'd have quite likely 99% understanding what I just said. Okay, where, tell me, pray tell me, did they use the parliaments of this country? They opened and closed them. No parliamentary committee, no oversight. What is the parliament all about? Parliamentary committees to take a look at what the government is doing, what they're instituting, 
and bringing in experts, not just the government experts, but outside experts to question what the government is doing, to see if it can stand critical analysis. None of it is done. And on top of that, this is perhaps the most cruelest cut of all. As David Redman would say, who's in Alberta, would say, and if you haven't had him on your program, if you can get him on your program, this would be unbelievable. This is the man who was a a retired army officer and who became head of the emergency measures organization in Alberta and rewrote the legislation there. And he has written perhaps more eloquently than anybody in Canada. He perhaps better than anybody in Canada destroys the government's narrative just on the basis of you, you all, all 10 provinces have emergency measures organizations and they were completely ignored through this pandemic. And what do they do? What's their job? What's their one job? Is to be able to develop policies ahead of time which and anticipate emergencies so that they are available to government when an emergency is declared. It's really amazing when you when you hear it out loud, just how absolutely ludicrous all of this has been. And I believe there's more people in Canada paying attention to politics than there probably ever has been before because so many people are seeing these fatal flaws that right. are occurring right now. Right. And it, the public pushback uh, simply from, as you said, hearing a, a chief medical officer utter the words Charter of Rights and Freedoms has given such a false sense of peace and security to the general public that they think that, oh, the government would never do wrong. They're always going to do right by the citizens. They're always going to uh, consider all of these legislations before coming down with such draconian measures. And we're sitting here on this side saying, but this isn't actually happening. Now, when it comes to democracy, with more people taking part, there's a, a huge level of frustration from people just all of a sudden seeing what's happening. So when you get into the House of Commons, when you start watching CPAC, when you start listening to the debates, and then you you listen to what the mainstream uh, news outlets are saying, it's terrifying to see uh, more so what isn't happening when it comes to our due parliamentary process um, as opposed to what is, because it feels as though Uh, even though the Conservatives have provided strong opposition in some regards. Only after the fact, even the Conservatives, where were they for the first year, year and a half or more of this pandemic? Nowhere to be found. They were hiding away. They were hiding away. And And that's their their biggest criticism right now um, from Conservative voter bases is that it seemed to take the visible observation of the convoy and the magnitude of support support for the convoy in order for conservative members to start feeling confident enough to say something. Now, with with there being so many people now involved or at least paying attention to politics, uh, do you agree that uh, a significant reason as to why we're in this situation is because as citizens of a democracy, as a collective, generally speaking here, we have failed to actually exercise our responsibility within a democracy by kind of allowing the government just 
take the reins, not really get involved. There's no real need for me to pay attention to what's going on. This general assumption that the government's always going to do right by its people and follow due process. Do you feel as though that's played a role in why the government feels so confident to just push, steamroll these things through, knowing that any type of public pushback is going to be minimal? This started over 40 years ago perhaps 50 or 60 years ago. We as a society, both in our educational system, in our health system, one time we had one of the greatest health systems in the world. It's one of the worst now in the industrialized Western world. Mm -hmm. And Canadians still won't accept the reality of where we are in our health care. Over 5 million Canadians don't have a a family physician, can't get one, okay? This is almost 20% in BC, 17% nationwide of Canadians can't get a family physician. So there you go. And all the way through on all of the main measures, we have failed in the last 40 years. But at the same time, our educational system has failed. I mean, the students can go to school now and in high school before they leave, they can take on whatever subject they want. Very little is mandatory. So they learn nothing about civics. They learn nothing about economics. They come out as complete, complete, ignorant of the kinds of things they're going to have to deal with the next day. Mm -hmm. They really don't know. The universities have failed very bad and have gone to the left so far. It's not even funny. And as it relates to parliament, and this is really key on the political governance side, because your point is quite valid, but I, I want to explain it. What's happened over time, and I saw this happening all the time, is that the Parliament of Canada and the legislative assemblies gradually lost power without a shot being fired, without a law being changed. And the power moved very uh, subtly and very mischievously from the parliament to the cabinet to the prime minister's office. Would you believe if I told you today, and you have a job to find this out by, to verify this, that the prime minister's office has, reporting to him now, between 1,500 and 1,600 people just the prime minister. Now, that's in addition to 7,000 assistant deputy ministers and deputy ministers that he appoints. And if you notice, if you remember Judy Wilson-Raybo mm-hmm. and the obstruction of justice that the prime minister caused, by the way, prime ministers broke the law five times and still prime minister. How he holds the record, doesn't he, for ethics he violations too? He's law-breaking. It's not ethics violations, as some people like to say in the mainstream media. He broke the conflict of interest law. It was a law passed by Parliament. It's not just an ethical violation, and he did it five times. This is where the Conservatives and the NDP, as well as the Liberals, have a lot to answer for. Have you heard an MP, have you heard a leadership candidate for the Conservative Party say, I will, if elected, leader, propose immediately that anybody who breaks the law and is an MP cannot serve any longer in the House of Commons. Nobody has said it. Even when the Prime Minister broke the law five times and the Minister of Finance broke the law, nobody, Conservative, NDP or Liberal, have proposed a motion to say this is wrong and no MP can serve in the House of Commons if he breaks the law. If we break the law, we'll quite likely lose our job. But an MP who's who's going to pass laws and affect us, perhaps for all time, get to pass. Mm-hmm. I mean, this is not democracy at all. So, okay, so what's happened is we have allowed this power shift politically 
to happen over time, both um, in the provinces as well as the federal government. Mm-hmm. So the, we really have a presidential republic. We have a presidential system, right? And an executive government system rather than a parliamentary system right now. And mm-hmm. without a shot being fired, without anybody saying a word. And, and if you go back right to Socrates, you go back right to Socrates, a democracy is only as good as the level of civic engagement. Civic engagement low, democracy low. Civic engagement high, democracy high. And what has happened in Canada, we have civic engagement low and our democracy is now failing and we're no longer a democracy. When Charles Hoff is treated the way he is, when Dr. Brian Bridal is treated the way he is, when Tamara is treated the way she is, having to go into court in shackles for an alleged crime not a crime for which he was found guilty for an alleged violation to go in and shackles in the court and appear before who? A judge who was a liberal candidate. Yep. The government party's candidate a few years ago. I mean, this is outrageous. You can't even write this stuff. You you know, a fiction. I mean, no, the greatest fiction writer in the world could could not make this up as good as what I'm describing now. So the power shift has happened over 40 or 50 years. The law societies, the law faculties of all the universities have introduced a new way to interpret the Constitution. It's called a living tree document, whereby it doesn't make any difference really what the Constitution says. It'll just be a little bit of a guide, but we'll go by what the people are saying. And we'll therefore interpret the Constitution in light of what the people are saying, whether in fact the Constitution actually says it or not. And so they're creating law not interpreting well. So that's where we've come over the last 40 years. And if we don't arrest it now, by the way, I've got window washers here coming right in front of me in a few minutes outside, which I have no control over, uh, (laughs) as just one of 27 in this uh, development. So if you hear a bit of noise, uh, you'll know it's uh, not something that I'm doing. Totally fine. Okay, it's happening right now. So to, to, to culminate this point, finalize this point i just say that i agree with what you said and i some illumination that i just gave i hope is helpful to your listeners and viewers in understanding how this happened because i was a part of it yeah wow i've been in politics elected politics since 1971 i was a campaign manager in 1971 for the local conservative candidate in a rural riding in newfoundland when i was a high school teacher I saw the corruption then. Joey Smallwood tried to buy me off at the time, who was the premier since Confederation. Okay, I saw, I saw it then. That's why I got involved in politics the next year and ran myself. And I ran in a riding that had never been conservative in its history, from 1832 to 1972. The only riding in Newfoundland that had never been conservative in its history is the one I overturned on wow. March 1972. So I've been in politics ever since then, one way or shape or form. When I retired as premier, I got involved in consulting, which again kept me involved in the public policy business because I was interfacing with governments all over Canada and in Europe and in the United States every day as a consultant, my own, my wife and I had our own company. And so I come by this with a lot, a lot of experience. I mean, what is 1972? To, to, to 2022. How many years is that? 50. 50 years. 
That's pretty significant. And that this is what's so frustrating is when we have powerful voices like yours being so hidden and censored. If if that doesn't send chills up the spines of all Canadians, then I don't know what will. And and what's the most concerning to me uh, is is how easily the Canadian public believes what they see in mainstream media and and so much so that they take it as near gospel that this is the truth that they're being told and fail to ask the question what aren't they telling me or what's the other side of this story and this mass campaign of ridiculing people for conducting their own research has uh, acted as the greatest act of of, uh, discrediting human beings who are intelligent, who find resources, who take the time, so much time to read through so much content in order to form an opinion. And those are the ones that are being silenced. Yeah, no question. Even the most uh, greatest scholars in the world who who studied the science of this whole so-called pandemic thing. But to take my trend of thought from earlier, the ground was fertile when the pandemic or the virus hit, okay? And then you had the Imperial College of London issue a whole bunch of scare tactics, which were completely false, which the White House and everybody else in the world governments took as gospel, right? Mm-hmm. But before that had even happened, or around that time, the ground was fertile then because we had allowed all of these things to happen, the power to shift to the prime minister's office, to the premier's office and so on all around the world, not just in Canada, but yes. particularly because we're in Canada, we, uh, we can see it clearly every day. But the other thing that happened along these lines is we didn't realize how much power Big Pharma had. We did not realize how much the government had infiltrated the media. Yeah. and provided $600 million to the media, which therefore meant that the so-called fourth estate was no longer an independent watchdog on the governments like the press was supposed to be. That's why it was called the fourth estate. And so you had these big pharma, big government, big media, right, and big tech. I call them the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? <laughs> That's true. Sadly true. Yes. There are there they are. And they were all conspiring together. So what chance did the ordinary citizen have who was listening to a CTV, a global or pray tell not to CBC, but who was listening to any of those uh, uh, major media outlets, not realizing that they were operating with money from the government of Canada, from Mm -hmm. their tax dollars. And so all of this conspired at the same time as the virus hit. So talk about being able to grow a nice vegetable because the, the soil was fertile. You had a beautiful vegetable being grown of taking away rights from individuals, right? Con, uh, condemning people who had a critical view of things, condemning anybody who had an alternate view because they had complete and utter control through the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And that's uh, as, I guess, as easy and as difficult as it needed to be in order to gain mass public buy-in and effectively accept uh, the condemnation or segregation of a large group of people, whether they chose not to be vaccinated or whether they chose to be vaccinated and simply push back on the narrative saying this isn't right. 
Uh, it was easy for people to just vehemently oppose that group of people because uh, those four pillars, as you're the four horsemen, were right. all so perfectly aligned right. yeah. to create this mega yeah. storm of propaganda that's very difficult for people to break away from because in, in order to acknowledge the fact that you have either taken part in it or you have been a part of it or you have uh, bought into it, that's a difficult pill for people to swallow mm-hmm. because it also requires them to come to terms with reality and this reality that we're in right now is very disruptive to the blissful ignorance that so many Canadians are living in. No question. No question. And, and, and you see, what happened was uh, uh, at that time when all of those four forces came together, you had, as I say, the Imperial College of London. Oh, my gosh. I mean, one of the great pillars of, of, you know, of, of thought in the world, putting out this, these fearful messages. And fear is something else, right? The human condition is very, right, subservient to getting, hearing all of these things from so-called credentialed places. And then when the Imperial College of London sort of failed after about 60 days or 70 days in, and it was shown that people weren't dying in the streets, millions weren't dying in the streets, uh, then it got transferred over to the University of Washington in Seattle, and they picked up the cudgel and regurgitated with some more studies, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, bad studies, that the White House picked up again. And so it just moved from one academic institution to another, one in London to one in Seattle. And, uh, you know, Fauci and the boys were, were perpetrating this stuff from the University of Washington for another couple of months before we really, uh, people could realize that this was all just a sham yeah. and based upon modeling and other, you know, selected material. And, and those who spoke out at all to say, well, just one second here now, we should take a look at this, were condemned from heights on high. Yeah. All in the effort to keep people afraid. You mentioned fear, because yeah. when when we're afraid, it's a, it's a natural human response, whether we're conscious of it or not, uh, to want to be protected. And not only that, you lose your rationality. Yeah, it becomes irrational. So fear is irrational, and yeah. that's where most of the people have been and still are in Canada as it relates to this virus. They're yeah. still in an irrational state because they're still fearful, and there's still people walking around with masks on outdoors. Yeah, yeah. outdoors where there's nobody within sometimes a half kilometer of them, you know, or you see somebody on a bike with a mask on, preventing them from getting oxygen. It's so symbolic to how intense this programming has been because I, sh- exactly. I share those observations when I do see someone outside by themselves, no one around, and they have a mask on. And the first thing I think of is it worked. Yeah. This, this programming, this collusion, it was effective. Yes. And that's why, you know, people like you, people like me, anyone else speaking out, challenging the narrative, challenging decisions being made were a threat. Because yes. if people start to listen to people like right. us, then they lose the ability to keep people afraid. Um, I'd love to talk about the federal travel mandate. So you have an application before the courts now um, to push back and have the uh, federal travel mandates overturned. And right. you have cited uh, violations of the Charter of Rights and Freedom, Section 2A, Freedom of Conscience and Religion. Uh, Section six, mobility rights, 
uh, Section 7, Life, Liberty, and Security Rights, Section 8, Search and Seizure, and Section 15, Equality. So now you also, in, in your application, mention that Section 6, I believe, of the Aeronautics Act is what the transport minister, uh, Omar, Omar Al-Gabra, is currently using uh, as a means to put this, quote-unquote, interim order through to enact the uh, complete ban, uh, with the exception of a few approvals for exemptions, complete ban of people who chose not to get an experimental vaccine to get on planes, trains, or ferries uh, domestically or internationally. And this is something that I have uh, been spending quite some time trying to track down myself, because as, as I understand this, and correct me if I'm wrong, the interim order in order to be enacted under the Aeronautics Act would need to have consultation from the appropriate departments in order to be able to enact something of this nature. So in this case, it would be the uh, public health, it would be uh, the health department. And therefore, if an interim order of this magnitude is to be enacted, then surely there has to be some sort of um, proper proof that exists in order to support these mandates. I myself have uh, been given the runaround by El Gabra's office uh, in his constituency, Transport Canada. My MP's office can't seem to track this down. I've spoken to representatives from railway security and civil aviation. And I have also uh, gone through the public health line and the COVID-19 emergency line, all asking the same question. What is supporting the interim order? And this is where I have been blocked on all angles. To, I haven't been able to find anything tangible. No one's been able to present anything to me other than a blanket statement. We are simply following the Aeronautics Act. And sometimes they would mention the Quarantine Act. But nobody has been able to provide me with what is actually supporting the interim order in the Aeronautics Act itself. Uh, and I guess that goes back to the uh, the concept of, of demonstrably justified. So what is this piece of work or science or something that is uh, so telling and so profound that we must keep the unvaccinated off of airlines and trains? We can't let them leave the country because they pose such a risk what is that document? What is that science? Does it exist or is this the problem? We're trying to find out. That's why I have the lawsuit. We're trying to find out on what basis uh, they were able to put this travel ban in. Now, I um, launched this lawsuit against Section 6 in the travel ban and just back up a little bit for two reasons. One, because uh, most people would understand the travel ban a lot quicker than they would some of the other mandates in the provinces and some of the uh, even other federal mandates. It's quite simple because Canada was founded as related to travel. The early explorers traveled the rivers, you know, of the country. Uh, the First Nations travel, used the rivers, right? So we're a country of travel. Uh, all of the Western provinces got formed because of the railway. Oh my God, that's a travel 
that's a travel mode. So there you go. We were formed out of travel. So I understood this well. And one of the reasons why I chose this particular mandate, the challenge, because I understood that all Canadians could immediately connect with them. We got families all over Canada. I got a family in, in Ontario. I have family in Nova Scotia. I have family in Newfoundland. Wow. And I'm here in British Columbia. So that'll give you an idea. And I'm sure I'm not, <laughs> I'm not unique in that kind of family relationship. Other not families have businesses. Other people have businesses in two or three provinces and so on. And so travel is very simple to understand. That's one reason. The other reason why is because I could reference it directly to a federal court, right? I don't have to go through the other two courts in the province, right? So it makes it, okay. I, might, I might get there quicker this way. <clears throat> the other thing was that there grew up in Canada at the time when I did this in January uh, and last fall when I was looking at this, uh, quite a few people who were contacting me who were uh, talking about this travel ban coming in and how injurious it was going to be to them, right? And some had already initiated some court actions. And what we were able to do, I think you'll be interested to understand, is to bring those other court actions in Ontario and Quebec under the aegis of one case. Right. Because one of the biggest problems you have in pursuing these kinds of legal actions, if you have four or five going to the same court, right? right. Then the court is likely to combine them the way they want them combined. And the court is usually getting upset, right? Judges get upset. My God, I've already got one. You mean I got another three? What are we going to do about this? We're going to combine them somehow. And so we went to these other lawyers and said to them, you know, we've already submitted. You're about to submit or whatever. Because uh, they had contacted me, by the way. Two of those law firms had contacted me from Ontario and Quebec to see whether I would participate with them. I had already committed to doing my own through mm -hmm. the Justice Centre. And so we got on to them and they agreed. Meanwhile, we were able to find very quickly five other people who had unique, each one was different than the other in how the travel ban was affecting them. So in my action, in that lawsuit, is not only Peckford, but there's five other names. Other applicants. Right, as part of that case, to show the diversity of the injury that is being caused by these travel bans and including Mr. Bernier, the leader of the People's Party of Canada, who was the only politician who really stood up through all this, went to jail yeah. on your behalf and my behalf, yeah. right? Went to jail. Uh, and I just saw today, too, he just put up a notice as well um, that they have a, a date now that this is going to be heard in September. I just saw that come out today. Oh, well, you got it before me because uh, I'm waiting to hear. We were hoping it was going to be September. Yeah. Uh, have the hearing so that'd be fantastic if it is because we knew there was some slippage and i want to come to that where you were just talking about you having difficulty getting information <laughs> well so is everybody <clears throat> anyway just in the last few weeks as part of our court case is ongoing right now okay it's not in the public but it's ongoing in the sense that hearings are being held where our side is producing data the other side is producing data and each side has the right to cross-examine before right. it comes to the hearing, all this is done as preliminary work, but it's all part of the court case. So it's well underway, we're very active and happening every week. Okay, so I want people to know it is not just uh, sitting there, right? It, it's active and, and moving quickly. 
one of the things that has happened just recently was that I think the federal government is really starting to take this very serious because they've added over the last two weeks uh, to the numbers of witnesses that they're going to call. They had told, said, we're going to call this many. Boom. Thank you very much. All of a sudden, right out of the blue, they, they've had a change of heart. They want to add more so-called expert witnesses, and they've added more lawyers. So now, is that, a, is that a result of, of the affidavits that you and, and your applicants put through? Like, is that them kind of starting to feel a little bit more shaky in their position and thinking, oh, boy, think we so. may need more help? <laughs> I, I think it's I think it's as simple as that. I think mm-hmm. they realize we're into a big case here very, very early on when this started. Um, for example, I know uh, my lawyer, uh, Keith Wilson in, in uh, uh, Alberta, by the way who's okay. been hired by the Justice Center uh, to be, right? He's an outside lawyer that's been hired because he's had a lot of experience in dealing with the courts and federal courts and, and big cases, many many of them to do with people in Alberta who were uh, being maligned by the oil industry and by the government in things on their own land and then went all the way up through the court system. So okay. Mr. Wilson is an extremely seasoned lawyer, which I'm very happy to have on our case. Yeah, sounds like it. Lawyers too, three or four of them as well. But it's really interesting because very early on, uh, there is this story that I haven't told anybody yet. I don't think Mr. Wilson would mind me telling it, but it's along these lines, which somebody in the court, I think it was the judge happened to mention. I think the case, when you looked at it, was is Peckford versus the Transport Canada or something. My name is mentioned. I'm the high profile one for obvious reasons. But in discussing it, somebody mentioned Peckford, well, like one of the federal people mentioned, or the judge mentioned Peckford, and my lawyer was quick to follow up on the judge and say, no, I'm sorry, you made a mistake. You made a big mistake. It's the honorable, because he's a privy counselor, Your Honor. He is a privy counselor, and he's the only living signatory to the Patriation Agreement, which became the Charter Rights and Freedoms and Constitutional Act of 1982. And of course, within the decorum of the court, if it's not anywhere else in Canada today, Privy Council, Privy Councillors, people who are appointed to Privy Council, all of that stuff is still extremely important. And so just a little slip like that and having an acute lawyer on the other side can just bring everybody's attention to we're talking about a very serious case here where somebody who was a first minister of this nation and who was involved in creating what we're arguing about is still alive. And, and now before, here. And before the, right before the court. So I, to make a long story short, I think over time, since January, it's become abundantly clear to the federal authorities that they've got a real case on their hands here. And to come directly to your point of the Aeronautics Act, to jump ahead so I don't waste too much of your time on the tangents of, of this situation. Uh, I remember talking to my lawyers early on, and one of the things that really alarmed them was that they used the Aeronautics Act. Because if you read through the Aeronautics Act, it has to do with the safety and security of the plane. It has nothing to do with who's on the plane. Interesting. Traveling on the plane. Why would you use the Aeronautics Act? Because they're going to, we're going to argue that's ultra virus. It has no applicability 
to the issue at hand. And then our, my lawyers, of course, get into sections uh, of the uh, charter which are being violated. So this Aeronautics Act really has no applicability and is not germane to the case that is being brought and, and should not have been used in when you were trying to bring in a mandate in the first place because it doesn't deal with people travel. It deals with the safety of the aircraft. So uh, I hope that that, that that helps you out a little bit. But It sure does. But the point of it all being, and then, of course, if you deal with Section 6, where it actually says, right, I got it right here before me, right? Section 6 of the, of the, of the Charter, where it talks about every citizen of Canada has the right to enter, remain in, and leave Canada, right? I mean, can you believe, to move and take up residence in any province, to pursue the gaining of a livelihood in any province. And yet we're stopped from gaining a livelihood. If, we, if I live in um, Vancouver Island and I, and I work in Alberta, right, and I fly back and forth every weekend, well, now I can't fly back and forth. I've lost my job. This is right in there. It's right in there. I, I know someone here in Calgary, actually. Uh, he's in the oil and gas sector. And he had to drive from Calgary <laughs> to Toronto to attend an in-person meeting that was less than half a day and, or, and then turn around and come all the way back home again. One of the five that's part of my lawsuit is a gentleman who has a business in Southern Ontario and Yellowknife. And this, this is what people I don't think realize. A, I mean, Canada is massive. We rely on uh, all different types and forms of, largest of travel. In the world, only Russia is larger. We're the second largest country geographically on the planet. Mm-hmm. And yep. these people in Ottawa, they think that the Rideau Canal is the beginning and end of transportation yep. in this country? I mean, how outlandish is this whole thing and how silly it gets when you peel away all of the, uh, all of the uh, you know, of the vegetable and, and see just what, what's inside here. It's so, scary but, stuff, what's inside. Why, why do you think um, the transport minister is, is at least coming across? As so confident in his in his position right now, like what do you think is is bolstering him so much? I think they live in a bubble now. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if you witnessed this, but I did. I I was asked to run for federal politics. I was asked to go in the Senate, and I turned it down. I'm one of the few people in Canada that was offered a Senate seat and said no. Um, but why? Because in my visits to Ottawa from 1972 to 1989. I saw the transformation that happened to people that I knew very well, that once they became an MP, picked up an apartment in downtown Ottawa, right, and were dealing every day within the confines of the Ottawa bureaucracy, they changed. They changed. It's like they became they part of a machine. They became part of the bubble, and they were in it, you know, six, eight, um, seven days of the week, right? And so they got infected with this... Uh, centralizing, uh, all-knowing, uh, expertise-dominated uh, thing, where then when they went back to their constituencies, they sort of put up with us sort of thing. And I could see that myself from MPs that I knew, individuals that I knew, that most of them changed and became part of what was wrong, right? They, they changed. And um, they, so this is not healthy. No, it's not. No, I, I think that's one of the reasons they're they're talking to themselves all the time. And I think this Minister of Transportation 
And of course, and most of these people are so beholden to this prime minister. I mean, you know, you're not a minister unless you're appointed by the by the first minister. You're appointed by the prime minister and the premiers the same way. They're, they appoint these ministers. So, you know, this car, this driver, this extra tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars are also due to you being doing what the prime minister says and buying into his narrative. Now, when you have a minister, you know, like this one, especially where he you know, lauded the Chinese governance system, where he lauded, you know, very good friends with Fidel Castro and all that. And yeah. so his whole modus operandi is to be one which is completely counter to a mainstream political thought in Canada. And he's dragged all of these Canadians along as if this is the best thing to do. Then you can understand. And the cabinet and now... Uh, the cabinet has very little power anymore. And so they're more dependent on the prime minister than they ever were. Back in my time, uh, when Don Mazankowski was around from Alberta, for example, very strong re regional minister. There were regional strong ministers from Saskatchewan. There were regional strong ministers, Lloyd Axworthy from Manitoba. Uh, these were very strong ministers. John Crosby from Newfoundland, Alan McKechn from Nova Scotia, right in Ontario, I had a bunch of Quebec ahead. You know, Chrétien, Lalonde, right? The new name, right? They had them. But that's all over. You don't hear about any regional ministers anymore. That's gone because the power is with the prime minister's office and the privy council office, which reports to the prime minister. It's getting heavier and heavier and heavier. It's and, heavier. and so this minister that you're talking about, right? To give it its biggest context so that people can understand this is what has happened. The more dependent, the you know, cabinet committees meet now, not not the whole cabinet, because all of the power is coming from the prime minister. Prime minister's office is telling people what the agenda is for the cabinet committee meeting, right? And nobody can speak, well, what does the prime minister's office say, right? That's the end of the game. What yeah. does the prime minister's office say? What does the prime minister say about this? They have the last word. And this is what feels so disheartening, because I, I genuinely believe that people at least their likely original intent and purpose for getting into politics was to do right by their communities and be a voice for the people uh, in their writings and you know, do the right thing and, and make change. Like, And I, I also believe that about journalists too, that have been yeah. sucked into this media machine right. that I believe all of these people were very innocent in, in why they got involved and chose these careers in the first place. But you're right. Something happens when they yeah. get into these uh, environments. And yeah. it's so obvious that uh, yeah. They lose touch with the very people that they originally wanted to work for. And right. even in responses, I, I, I'm in a conservative riding. So typically when I'm squawking away to my MP about something, I have something in the form of some sort of support. But when when other people in my community are, are writing their uh, liberal MP, if they're in a liberal writing, the responses that are coming back from the MPs are, are not only, if they do get a response, are, are not only rude, they are, they're condescending. Um, it's almost as though these people don't even have a right to access them about these types of things. And it's so yeah. disheartening to see yeah. what how easily these people have shifted and, and even watching the, the House of Commons proceedings when the prime minister is standing up and speaking and everybody's behind him nodding their heads and clapping. 
And I'm thinking, how can you, okay, maybe let's put policy aside. How can you support an individual who is without a doubt causing an unprecedented amount of harm, not just to the country, but millions of of people in it? How can you so willingly continue to support this person? Right. And that, and, and they're participating in it. So it's not just one individual. There's a lot. Right. And by the way, even under the conservatives, this was happening. Yes. And the, the, yep. the answers to the questions were already pre-prepared. So, you know, somebody up all the questions from the liberal side to ask soft questions of the minister to make them look good. And then they anticipated, uh, which is easy to do. I remember this. I didn't do it, but I know everybody, a lot of governments were doing it would prepare the answers ahead of time so that the parliamentary secretary could get up for the minister and answer the question, reading from a pre-prepared answer from the bureaucrats, from the people in the minister's office, okay? So you had the answers already prepared. So everything was orchestrated. There was nothing done spontaneous, and as the thing came up, it's all orchestrated, which just tells you how far uh, the parliament has fallen, right? And uh, and so... uh, yeah, there, there's no question. Look what happened to Aaron O'Toole. I mean, he was mm-hmm. talking the same way as some of these leadership candidates are today. But he was only in Ottawa as a leader for like about three or four months. And suddenly we began to see how he was moving from having a pure, good, conservative position, which it was defensible, factual, logical. Uh, and yet he moved to a more liberal position. Yep. And so did everybody with him. Yeah, because they all allowed it to happen, including the leadership and the, uh, the candidates today. They were part of that. Yeah. And by the way, some of them are still part of it today. Andrew Shear was a leader not too long ago. That's what did true. he do? I was still a part of the Conservative Party at that time, and I was giving money to them. Yeah, my wife and I were giving money to them, and then we found out that Andrew Shear was taking some of the party money and financing his kids in private school. He's still I an MP. He's still in the shadow cabinet. Yeah. Yeah. And how is they that allowed? There. So this is the problem I have. You know, when you talk about Trudeau, I say, yes, yes, yes. But then I want to talk about the other parties in the House of no. Commons who themselves have participated in this charade and allowed for this corruption to continue. So until the conservatives clean up their own act, and by the way, they don't even, as I've been putting on my blog in the last few weeks, they don't even publish their financial statements. We don't know what they're doing, how they're spending the money that everybody is sending them. Liberals, where's their financial statements on their website, their party website? Nowhere to be found. NDP, nowhere to be found. The Green Party says on their website that if you're a member of the party and ask for the financial statements, you're you're likely to get them. That's the only one. But the party that's not in the parliament, Bernier's party, the People's Party of Canada, of which I'm now a member, I have to uh, acknowledge, go in on it when, when this thing's over and you'll find how much you even get paid by the party. It's all there. For Transparency. Transparency and accountability. So unless we start reforming the parties, yeah. we're not going to be able to reform Parliament. Solid point. And, you know, we, we see it too when... Uh, we know that there are individual MPs who may not be aligned due to party ideologies. They end up voting for or against something because that's what the party wants, as opposed to acting on the 
behalf of the best interests of their own constituents. So in all levels, we're totally disconnected from the very people that the politicians work for, which is us. And like the parliamentary committee, like Judy uh, Wilson-Raybould was, was with Jody, I think her name is. Jody, yep. Jody Wilson-Raybould. Uh, she had more information to give on that uh, uh, scandal, right? She had more information to give and asked to repair before the committee closed her down. Closed because her the majority down. on the committee were liberal and NDP. And so they closed down the committee and she wasn't able to provide any more of the information that she already had to present. So that would give you how corrupt the system is. So we've got to get back to individual MPs having some autonomy, right? Having some integrity. We've got to get back to the parliamentary committee really mattering and it can't be closed down. It can't be tyranny of the majority. This is is why the United States has been very successful for so long as a democracy is because the founders in the Federalist Papers always worried about the tyranny of the majority. They saw that as a real problem and if you read there that some of the greatest literature ever written is the federalist papers and uh, i have it here i have i have, I have it all right here um uh, fabulous what madison wrote or what, you know what Jay, all of these guys wrote jay, jay wrote others uh, are just fabulous literature and there was tyranny of the majority and so yeah. that's why you have in the united states an elected senate with two senators from the tiny little state of new hampshire which you can hardly find on the map, you know, of three or four million people yeah. and two senators from California, which is just as big as Canada. And they both have two senators. Why? Right. They don't want to get into tyranny of the majority. And so this upper house levels the playing field from the House of Representatives, which has done more according to population. That's mm-hmm. called juridical equality right juridical equality not heard of very much anymore but i remember about it years ago so uh, we've got to get back right to reforming our political parties then reforming our parliament to make it work uh, in a more efficient responsible way remember the word it was representative government responsible government representative government meant that everybody in the parliament was elected Responsible government meant that everybody in the cabinet came from the parliament and had to be elected. When you had just representative government, you didn't have responsible government. So we moved from representative government to responsible government, to Canada as a nation in 1867, and then onward from there. One of our other problems is, as you know, or will remember when I, re- when I recited it, is that the United States of America had a Bill of Rights in their constitution 15 Mm -hmm. years after they became a country, 1776, 1791. We became a country in 1867. We didn't have a written Charter of Rights and Freedoms until 1982, 114 years later. So the United States has a culture of individual rights and freedoms. It's a culture. Yes. And you can you can feel that when when you're looking at even in the the cases that are before the courts in the states, even the the people just rising up against this tyranny in the states. It's a much different atmosphere down there because it's embedded into the very existence of what it means to be American. No question. And Canadians refuse 
to accept that. I put it as part of all my speeches. I, I mention it every time. Whatever you think of an American, whatever you think of America, I'm not, I'm not concerned about it. I'm just saying to you that they did have a written Bill of Rights and it's cultural with them. It's part of their who they are. And they did spill blood a few times on a number of revolutions that they had, whereas ours yeah. was not. The, the United Kingdom more or less conceded <laughs> Canada as a country through the Lauren yeah. Durham report and other ones. They conceded, oh, yeah, I guess, I guess Canada, these four places should be a, a country. And so Upper Canada, Lower Canada, Nova Scotia, New Brunswick became the four units that created Canada in 1867. Oh, yeah, I guess right. we could do that. And then over time, to gradually concede more and more power until 1981, when we finally patriated the Constitution, when we've got the Charter, by meaning that when the Constitution was patriated, London had no more power. In the future, we could amend our own Constitution. But up until 81, the United Kingdom was still involved. That's amazing to think because it's we not had, that had, long ago. We had, Exactly. We had to get an act of the UK Parliament and the proclamation by the Queen uh, to do what we did. But one of the big rabbit holes that everybody still goes down is that the monarchy still has power in Canada, that the charter wasn't passed, that the charter is not powerful. Yet, right here in the Constitution Act of 82, it says that once this is passed, the UK has no more power. The UK Parliament has no more power. It's complete and utter sovereignty. We never got it until 1982. Negotiated wow. in 1981, legislated and proclaimed in 1982, right here in this document, right? And so like it says, no act of parliament of the United Kingdom passed after the Constitution Act of 1982 comes into force shall extend to Canada part of its law. No more. Wow. It's over and done with. And so people write me every day and there's people in the, uh, uh, an organization in Saskatchewan, which is continually perpetrating that we can go back to the queen. We can go back to the governor general. We can do this. And I, and I, I, I quote them. I put that in quotation marks, a quote right out of that section of the constitution showing that it's no more. I'm sorry. This supersedes everything else. And so this is, this is the end of it. This is in our constitution. So we do have the power and it's all in our hands now. Yes. We have wow. The other thing is when they talk about, um, you know, well, how do you change the Constitution? There's an amending formula. We have an amending formula in the Constitution. If you want to change the Constitution, then get out there and campaign yes. for it along the lines of you need seven provinces and 50% of the population. Canada. Wow. In order to change. So there's, a, there's an actual process that's written in if there are changes to be made. That was one of the key things of why it took so long for us to get patriations because we couldn't agree on an amending formula. It was a big conference in Victoria back in 1972, I think it was. Huge big conference covered by all the media because they thought that it was going to be the Victoria um, formula, the Victoria, I think it was called the Victoria formula even. And uh, but it, di it didn't fly. Couldn't get everybody on side, right? That's why it took so long because we couldn't come up with an amending formula. There was a, a, a Pepin Robarts Commission. You can look it up and Google it in. John Pepin, who, who was a member of the Trudeau uh, clique at the time from uh, Quebec, a very bright man, Jean-Luc Pepin, I think his name was. And, and uh, Mr. Robarts, who was the premier 
of Ontario before William Davis. So we're going back to the 50s, okay? 1950s. But a very esteemed, we had esteemed politicians and really, really honorable people, right? He had been and was still esteemed, right? And Pepin was known as a very cerebral guy uh, and very, whilst at the same time being intellectual was practical and could see all sides of, of an issue quite likely. And so they were appointed to look at Canada and see what you would propose reforming Canada, including an amending formula kind of stuff. And that failed. And he, they talked about, by the way, their conclusions were a more decentralized Canada, like I've been talking about ever since the day I got into politics. Wow. I was saying, and it said we've gone completely the other way. The other way. Restore the BNA Act with the division of powers. Wow. Health is completely provincial under the BNA Act. Education is completely provincial. But we've allowed the federal to enter the field and give us so much money that now we're more beholden to the to the government of Canada than we are to the provinces. Yeah, Natural resources so and renewable resources are, are provincial, right? Municipal institutions are 100% provincial. And so we should be, that's what Bernier argues, of course, to get back to the original constitution. And we've allowed it ourselves to get diluted into a few pieces of silver and take away a lot of the freedoms and rights that the provinces had. And this is this is what people are failing to understand is the size of government that is forming. Yes. There are there still seem to be at least so many people who seem to welcome the idea of big government and yeah. and it's almost like there's been so completely opposite of the culture that you mentioned in the United States there's a culture here in Canada at least this is what it feels like that um citizens want the government to come up with the solution and they want the government to solve this and this and this and this and this and they take a hands-off approach and put the responsibility on the government as opposed to it's a what can we do as people. It's a fait accompli because Canada is willing to allow 25 seats by a social so, socialist party to run the government of Canada today. It's yeah. a fait accompli. What did the NDP ask for? A pharmacare, pro, a, a new dental program, dental a new pharmacare program. And the government has bought into it by signing the deal so that they could stay in power until 2025. And there hasn't been a peep from anybody of any consequence uh, to, to argue against it. And here they are every day running the country. Uh, Vancouver yeah. Island is, is all NDP, provincially and federally right now. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, I think going back to the original um, conversation of democracy, Canadians just simply not understanding how much power we can have if we choose to allow ourselves to have it as because there's so many people out there that feel so hopeless right now that feel like and, and rightfully so, because the government is right now doing whatever they want. But I also believe it's because there isn't nearly enough intervention from okay. people on mass. You're dead on. You're dead on. Let me give you two really good examples, which you will get really startled by. One is I was briefing Alberta MLAs. They came to me and asked that I agreed to a Zoom meeting with them. And I had two different Zoom meetings. Okay. And I've had meetings with MLAs in Ontario and Prince Edward Island as well. Okay. All of these MLAs admitted to me during or after my presentation that they didn't know 
most of this was even in the Constitution. Oh, my God. And they were on their knees almost, metaphorically, thanking me for that 40-minute presentation where I started with the BNA Act and came through and all the rest of it. And, you know, more um, organized than we are today because we're going back and forth, but making all the points that I've made so far. Um, the other thing, listen to this. One of the MLAs asked me, well, what can we do? Well, I, I said, uh, would you have a party caucus? Make a presentation to the party caucus. Do out a, a, a just a, a, it's easy to do. Just write out an idea that you have or something that you are opposing that's coming forward before it gets to the legislature and force the ministers and the premier to debate it in caucus. And you might get enough on side, if you really believe in what you're doing, to stop this from happening because you think it's bad. Oh, we don't do that anymore. I had an MLA up in Yellowlake who was part of a Zoom meeting organized by a group of local citizens. And they got hold of a few MLAs and a few MLAs actually turned up. And this lady engineer, who was an MLA, asked me near the end, Mr. Peckford, Brian, she said, this has been unbelievable. Unbelievable. I didn't realize, blah, 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 blah. I've never read the Constitution Act. I've really, really never really read the Charter Rights and Freedoms. And then she goes on, but she says, what can I do? And I said, well, <clears throat> last week, I suggested to an MLA in another jurisdiction that perhaps you can become a really active caucus member. She was sitting down in her living room on her Zoom. She wasn't in the room where the main Zoom was happening, but they were Zooming her in. She went like that. Oh my God, she said, I never thought of it. Oh my gosh. How have our political representatives become so disempowered? So I said to them, in my time, I was a, a progressive conservative premier. We had a caucus. Caucus met all the time. Every bill that was to come to the House, the minister had to go to the caucus first and say, I am, right, introducing a bill. What are your ideas on this? Right? And so then the caucus members had an opportunity before it ever came to the House, right, to debate that in private and just tell the minister what they thought. Listen, you know, that section or that, the principle of that bill I oppose or the principle of bill I approve, I support, but I don't like section four or five, you're gone too far here, you're gone too far there, or whatever, or whatever. Work together. Then that bill would get delayed going to the legislature until the caucus had an appropriate time to debate it. We had an unbelievable debate over the um, seatbelt law when I was premier. I had two strong, real, real, traditional, classic conservatives that this was impinging upon individual liberty, and they could not go along with it. And so we argued it out in caucus. The majority of caucus passed it based upon the signs that came in of people dying and so on. But these two people still oppose it. And I said, well, you can get up in the house and oppose it. And, you, and we just don't see that anymore, right? We, we see complete unanimous alignment across the board. And it, it, from yeah. a democratic well, process, it's no. not healthy. Exactly. Wow. What can people do? So the average Canadian that's listening right now, thinking what on earth is even within my power, what would you recommend to them? Well, that's what I would recommend. Look, I said to a group in, uh, up here in Vancouver Island, 
couple of months ago now almost, uh, unbelievable group of people. Uh, and I said to them, why don't you get together with other people in this room and others who didn't get to this meeting but are like mine and say to your, your, your existing ML and your existing MP, we want to meet with you every quarter of every year while you're the MP. We want to know what you are doing in the House of Commons. We want to tell you what we think you should be doing on this bill and that bill. You can do that without changing a law, without doing a thing. Just get organized. And I'm sure if you got over 20 or 30, that MP and that MLA is going to have a listen. And they say, not going to meet with you. And you go to the local paper. I don't think they're going to be the MP the next time. Right? That's people and having the power. Start to research what's going on in the House of Commons. The internet has some great value. It has a lot of parts to it that I hate. I don't go on social media, for example. This is as far as I go, is what I'm doing now. I don't do the rest. I'll do that for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Other people are doing more than my, my as well. But here's something that every citizen taxpayer can do tomorrow. If you've got a group, just enlarge it. Enlarge that group. Get 50 or 60 people at a meeting. Get your citizens committee organized. You know, get a president or whatever. Organize it. Make sure it's credible and organized. And then write a letter or call up or email your MLA and so on. We are the citizens group of this area of your writing or of your, if it's a small uh, provincial writing, you can do it easily. Like right here, it's easy to do where I am for the provincial writing. Um, you could only have one citizens group. You might need three or four in an MP's writing. But let the people who are in the other part of the federal writing deal with it. You deal with what you are and your towns and little cities and say, right, here we are, the citizens of, so on. We want to meet with you every quarter. And we can change the venue or whatever. We'll raise the money if we need to, to rent a place for that period of time. And we want to sit down and talk to you and become engaged in what's going on. How are you representing us? Yeah. If that was done in the majority of writings in Canada federally, this system would be working a lot better than it is today. And this wouldn't have happened. Exactly. It's amazing what what how easy it is for people to feel as though they're completely powerless right now because a lot of people really do believe that this is Canada's a lost cause. We've lost it. Democracy's fallen. Government's too big. But something that simple of just organizing locally, getting a small group of people together to say, we're holding you accountable. I started my public meetings because I wasn't able to travel anyway. But I'm a small community person. I was born and raised that way. My dad and mom both came from St. John's, Newfoundland, from the capital, the big city for us at the time. But I was raised in rural Newfoundland. Okay? And I've always had uh, an, an affection for smaller places. You, if you had accompanied me on some of these meetings where I attended, where people asked for me to come, rented a church, couldn't get any other building, and mainly an evangelical church because evangelical Christians have learned more about early Christianity and individual rights and freedoms than mainstream Christian churches. I learned that, by the way. Interesting. I learned that in the last year. We turned up between Comox and Campbell River in Black Creek at a church that we agreed to attend, the organizers' campaign. 
it was overflowing. When Carol and I arrived, we got out of the vehicle and walked towards the church. Some people who were lying up outside saw us and started to cry. Wow. I can believe that. Because they didn't think I was going to turn up. They didn't think I was going to turn up. And when we squeezed them into that church, by putting them down on the floor between the pews, the wall and the pew, in the nave of the church, and right up front where I was speaking, I had a young mother there with three kids that she had sat down for two weeks telling them where they were going two weeks hence and what they were going to be doing. These three kids were there for three hours and never said a word, were as disciplined as they could be. And after I spoke and I went down and had questions over, went on for almost three hours, okay? When I started shaking hands with people, I saw this young lady with her three kids. I went along to She said, oh, my, Mr. Beckman, Brian, I'm so glad you came. You know, I brought along my three kids. I've been teaching them. I'm homeschooling them. And for the last two weeks, we've done nothing only the charter rights and grievance. This is a kid, four years old, three years old, five years old, and eight years old. Wow. And I said to her, I said, that's unbelievable. She said, could I get a picture? She had a, her camera. And I said, of course. So, so the boy was eight years old. And he was just under my arm right here. And the other two kids. And she was going to take the picture. And then I got my wife to take a picture of the whole family. But when he was there under my arm, I'll never forget. I looked down on him and I said to him, I said, young man, I cannot believe just how well behaved you have been for the last three hours. I said, you know, uh, it's amazing. And I said, I really want to thank you. He turned his head and he looked up at it and he said, no, 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 Mr. Peckman, you have it all wrong. He said, we have to thank you for coming. So when you talk about small places and people, right? Everywhere I went was like that. People were grateful, I think, and starved for information. And wanting to starved. know starved for information and the questions I asked question question and I would say to them when I began I'm going to be this was amazing now I had a lot of kids a lot of young people as well as older people in that church okay I couldn't believe it myself even though I had already done five or six of these okay I couldn't believe it myself because I said to them you know I'm going to be quite likely 40 minutes could be 45 minutes because I want to give you the full picture of this this is going to be history going to be you know coming up through the 1900s right so so i'm going to be at least 40 minutes and there was total and absolute silence when i said that i said 40 minutes and, and just people just nodding you know and more or less come on with it come on with it sort of thing then i said i want you to know this is what really copper fast and and, and you know they stand up stood up again standing ovation before i even opened my mouth about what i was going to say and i said i shall stay here as long as there's a comment or a question. So as I go through this, if you're scared that you suddenly come up with something, that you want to ask me really badly, and you're afraid you won't get the chance, because I know I've been in audiences like that. Speaker comes, speaks, and then leaves. Someone takes over. He's too sacred for to even answer a question. What do you, you know, you can't even, I said, I shall be here till the last question is asked, until the last comment is given. If that takes all night, it takes all night. So don't you ever worry that you won't ask 
or comment on whatever you want to say. And then they gave me standing ovation because they couldn't believe that this was true. And then for 40 minutes or 45 minutes, these kids lying on the floor never made a, never made a murmur, never went to the bathroom, never got up, never even stood up, you know, just they were all so well behaved. And so when I, I couldn't believe it when I finished and I started asking the questions, I had to say to people, I said, listen, I just got to thank you for being so observant and so listening to what I'm saying. And then when you heard the questions and you heard the comments, they all listened very, very well. And their questions were as intelligent, as good as I, I could get from a university audience, if not better. That's incredible. And and that just speaks to why I think they're trying to keep us so quiet, so separated from one another, because if we continue to align ourselves, organize ourselves, educate one another, inform people, empower people with what they can do within a democracy, it's too much of a threat to this very large government umbrella that's hanging over us right now. Can I tell you three stories from yesterday? Yeah. And I won't tell any more emotional stories. Okay. An elderly lady calls me from Saskatchewan. She's still working. She called me the night before, late. I said to Carol, I'll call her back tomorrow morning. I call her yesterday morning at about quarter to nine my time. Half past eight, quarter to nine. She informed me that Monday morning she went to work and was told her job was no longer there. She worked with Parks Canada. This is this past Monday because she wasn't vaccinated. She had applied for a religious exemption and they had turned her down. And she lost her job, a job that she was precious to her. And she was just a receptionist at a heritage site in somewhere in Saskatchewan. And she wasn't mixing with people all the time. She was just receiving them when they were going on. She's lost her job. She's lost her income. She's obviously quite, from what she said, I didn't ask her, but it's quite likely she was in her 60s or whatever. She lost her job. How can you help me? A guy called me from Alberta yesterday after that, and I got back to him. The reason why I get back to some of these people who let the phone ring is because there is some suggestion that many of us might be, somebody might be tapping our phones or following us. Mm-hmm. So I've been advised that perhaps if you let the phone ring, if you don't know the person or the name doesn't come up, and just a number that you don't, you're not familiar with, well then call them back and do it that way. So you know you're not getting caught into a trap of asking right. from a foreigner, from a stranger. So I called back this man in Alberta and he was out in his barn somewhere. And he looked up his cell phone, and here was my name. It's not you, Brian, is it? And I said, yes, it's me. I never ever thought he said, you call me back. Had a call from Montreal about an hour later from an engineer. He called me, and both of them called me for the same reason. Are you aware? They follow me religiously, have listened to all of my stuff that's been on platforms that you name it, they've listened to it. They know it inside out, upside down. And they follow my blog. And they're so interested in what I'm doing. They wanted me to know, do you know that the 
World Health Organization got a meeting coming up on the 22nd to the 28th to amend certain regulations. I just want to know that you know that you're fighting it for us. This is what the man in Alberta won, who was out of his burn. The guy in Montreal calls, I call him back. He's in his house. He's got a contractor in doing renovations in his house in Montreal. Not thinking I was going to call back for a couple of days or whatever. He was there helping out the contractors. He looks at his cell, sees my name, picks up the phone. Brian, because they, they see me on all of these venues. So Brian is the natural thing. In Newfoundland, of course, they all call me Brian's phone. And so I said, yeah, I never thought you'd call me back. He said, I left a message on the phone about the World Health Organization. And he said, did you get it? And I said, oh, yes. Well, he said, that's why I was calling. Is you're aware of it? And I said, yeah. So he just wanted to explain a little bit and express his concerns and stuff. He said, do you hear all the noise? And I said, yes, I do. What? Where in the devil are you? What are you up to? I, said, I just talked to a guy in Alberta without his barn. Where the hell are you? He said, I'm in my house. I got a contractor in Rene Benny. And he said, I never thought in my wildest dreams you would call back. He said, uh, while I was doing this. So he said, uh, thanks for calling back. So he expressed his views and so on. I told him, I'm, I'm doing what I can with other people who are in the World, World Council of Health, who I'm in communication with some people who work okay. for them and who are opposing this. And so, oh my God, he said, thank you very much. He said, I'm a municipal engineer. And he said, I've been following all this. And he said, I, I tell you, he said, I am scared. For my family. He said, I don't even know why I'm renovating my house. But he said, I planned this a long time ago. And he said, I, I've gone through with it. But he said, I don't even know why I'm renovating my house. Three stories from yesterday. Just one day. People just want to be heard. Hmm. They just want to be heard. And this is yeah. what so many people are 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 struggling with right now, especially if they're in writings where the MPs don't even bother to yeah. return an email, let alone. A phone call. That's how far we have gotten away from. I wrote. I wrote what all of the like. first ministers of Canada over two weeks ago now, asking them would they agree with the idea of a national inquiry to look at what's happened in the last two years to see whether it was constitutional and whether it was scientifically necessary. Just think that concept, and then we'll yeah. you know work out the details later. Is well, this idea? I have four replies electronically from four of them, no answers from the rest. Therefore, nobody's answered the question. All the four said was, I acknowledge the office said, I acknowledge an electronic thing. I acknowledge receiving here in the office your email for a valid question from someone who would probably be able to greatly benefit a process like that. Wow. Three territorial leaders, 10 premiers and the prime minister. So if I, as a former first minister, and now known by a lot of Canadians who didn't know me before over the last two years, and they know I'm out there every day, all of these leaders know I'm out there every day, won't even answer me, what chance has the ordinary citizen got? Exactly. I love your idea, though, of, of these local formations. I think that that's a really tangible thing that people can actually do. It's not a lot of work collectively. It can make a big difference. 
no difference than the club that yeah. you're part of. Just yeah. another club. Yeah. Only it's a political club in that you want to meet with your representative that you help elect and uh, mm-hmm. whose salary you are paying to report to you on a regular basis. And so we, let's have a let's have a discussion. There's always something we can do, and I think that's when it feels the complete opposite. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's that's our cue to yeah. go harder, go go be stronger exactly. in our approach, as opposed to kind of throwing our hands in there saying, what's the point? Because as soon as we take our hands off, we effectively give them even more power, which is the power that we're all fighting against right now. Because they translate that as an affirmative. Yeah. Yeah. You have a blog. Is this the best place for people to stay up to date? Yeah. This morning, one of the first comments I read on the blog this morning was from a couple. I don't know. I don't know if they gave where they're from in Canada. Uh, A couple of saying, Oh my God, Brian! We're um, I just want to say, you know, what you posted this morning or whatever. Uh, you know, we just really appreciate. We go, we go to your blog every day. That's where we get most of our information, and we just thank you very much. So my blog is P E C K F O R D, the letter four, the number four, and the number two. I was born in 1942, so it's Peckford42.wordpress.com. And is that also the best place to stay up to date with your court application, or is that better to go through the Justice Center? No, you can get it there. Get that there too. I I, I put updates in there every every month or so. Yeah. Okay. Perfect. And right yeah. now, um, based on the timelines, at least I saw on the Justice Center website, um, yeah. it looks as though, it, and I'm assuming that these are up to date at least. Is the next step in this the cross examination of all of the evidence that have been that has been put forth by both applicants and respondents? Yes. And is that something that the public can watch, or is that closed door? No, it's closed. Yeah, closed door. And what is your expected outcome for this case? Do you do you believe that you're going to win this? I wouldn't be in it if I didn't think that what I'm saying is reasonable. All I need to get is a judge who looks beyond what the lower court judges looked at, right? Right. One, one of the things that they the lower court judges even ignored was the first words of the Constitution. This country is based upon the principles of the supremacy of God and the rule of law, colon. Everything flows from that. Not a period, not a semicolon, a colon. Everything right. flows after this. That's part one of the charter. In other words, Judge, you are to interpret this court case in the context of those two principles. Well, I thank you deeply from the bottom of my heart. I'm someone who's directly affected by the travel mandates. And I hope that um, the folks who uh, you know chose to get vaccinated also start to recognize that, you know, the fight that you're in and the fight that we're in, this isn't just for the freedom of the unvaccinated to be restored. This is this sets a precedent for the direction that our entire country is heading in, which ultimately impacts everybody. If we lose, if all of us lose these court battles and the judiciary decides in favor of the government narrative, that becomes the new precedent. So five years from now, when governments decide that they're going to declare an emergency, whether legitimate or not, but declare it, 
and somebody takes them to court, the first thing the court is going to do is not look at the charter. They're going to look at 22 and 23 and the precedent that was set by their courts earlier. And the charter of rights and freedoms becomes post-useless. And that's how important this is. Highly diluted from where it is now. That's how important what we're involved in right now is. It's it's literally critical for the entire direction of Canada, for all people, for all rights, for all reasons listed within the charter. This isn't just... Uh, you know, a, a fight to redeem the unvaccinated in the public eye. This is or to quite make literally as a first minister or to make somebody else's job be easier because they, you know, this is fundamental to Canada having a real democracy. Yeah. Mr. Peckford, thank you for your time today. Um, it's been an honor to have this conversation with you and I know how busy you are. I know how many of these interviews you're doing and you are that person that gets back to each and every one of us. Um, so I can't imagine how busy both you and your wife are right now, keeping up with everything. Um, but just know that I'm, I'm representing a lot of people right now that are very, very eager for me to have this conversation with you. And I can safely say across the board, we're so grateful for what you are doing. Um, and if it wasn't for people like you that are taking the level of action that you're taking right now, I think that there would be a lot more of us that would be feeling a lot more hopeless than, um, maybe some of us are feeling right now. So just know how appreciated you are if, if it ever gets quiet on your end. Um, and, and we're behind you every step of the way, if there's anything we can do, uh, reach out to me directly and I'll rally the troops on our end and, uh, and we'll, we'll get behind you. Thank you very much for having me. And uh, I think it was a very worthwhile conversation. I enjoyed it. And I hope your people who support you and who come to visit your site uh, do take away something from it that's of value. And you have the most wonderful day of your life. Thank you. You take care. Bye. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you need support to grow or start your business online, be sure to connect with me at www.businesswithsarah.com forward slash connect or send us an email at team at businesswithsarah.com. If you love this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and leave a five-star rating on your favorite platform to help me reach more listeners. Until our next chat, be courageous and take some action.